you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to the Gospel according to John, John chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 35 through 51, and finish out this chapter this week. Next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, Joshua is going to be preaching for us from our assurance of forgiveness for this quarter from Jeremiah 31, and so we will take just a quick one-week break from our study in John and hear um, from Jeremiah, and then we'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks, beginning in in chapter 2. At the opening of our passage today, we're going to again find ourselves at the edge of the Jordan River with John the Baptist. However, the narrative is going to quickly move on from John to Jesus and to the various people who were coming to and then following after him. Uh, In this chapter, we are in the midst of a description of what we might call a week in the life of Jesus. And the events of of these days help us to feel in some way the reality of John 1.14, which says that the word became flesh. Uh, The accounts of, of these different encounters with Jesus are so, they're so earthy and common and real that they drive home the humanity of Jesus as he walked in and amongst people. They also remind us that Jesus meets us, in a, each of us, in a very similar way. Namely, he meets us right in the midst of our lives. These encounters teach us that uh, if we or our family or our friends are going to find and believe in Jesus, we're often and most often going to discover him not in some mountaintop experience or not in some silent temple, but just along the well-worn trails of common life experiences. And of course, that means in the midst of pain and difficulty, in the midst of sorrow and hardship, in the midst of joy and laughter and everything else that we experience in this life. As we look at these individuals, who knows what was happening uh, in their lives? What were they experiencing on this particular day when they met Jesus? But it was just another day until it wasn't just another day. Because while meeting with Jesus often happens on a day like any other, it is a meeting that changes everything about us. Of course, the reason an encounter with Jesus is so different from every other encounter in our, in our lives is because he is unlike any other person that we have ever met. Uh, John the Baptist has already shown us that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as well as the Son of God. And here, as, as Jesus' life intersects with Andrew, and John, and Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, five more titles are then given to him. He is called Rabbi, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. And as we enter into these encounters with Jesus and we hear these titles ascribed to him, John again calls us to listen to these witnesses and then to believe in Jesus and find life in him. Specifically, John 1, 35 through 51 reveals that if we truly receive Jesus for who he is, nothing will ever be the same. That'll be our big idea for today. If we truly receive Jesus for who he is, nothing will ever be the same. If we truly receive Jesus, is how we're saying it, receive is a synonym for believe in John's gospel. 
And to receive and to believe in Jesus is not something passive. Uh, Rather, the, the nature of true saving faith is that it transforms us and it makes us those who follow Jesus, those who will take up our cross and walk behind him, who leave everything behind to go where he leads. I was thinking about receiving, and I, my mind went to Nate and Karen and how they're soon going to have these two little babies, and the hospital's going to wrap them up in, you know what they call those blankets they wrap them up in? Receiving blankets. And so Nate and Karen will then receive these two little babies. And when they receive these babies, their lives will be changed forever. And these early followers of Jesus, they receive Jesus for who he is, and in turn, allow their lives to be completely changed and completely transformed by him. And if we too will receive Jesus for who he is, nothing will ever be the same. This afternoon, it could be for some of us that the transformational impact of receiving Jesus and following him has maybe worn off a little bit. As much as Jesus does meet us in our everyday lives, the the cares of our everyday lives can also distract us from the transformation that uh, that the gospel must bring into our hearts and into our lives. Our passage today then could be a, a call to renew our commitment to walking with Jesus. Or, or it could be that, that you've never really encountered Jesus. At least the Jesus that's described here by, by John in these verses. And maybe, maybe today, maybe today is the day that, that Christ meets you. And your heart responds with faith and obedience to his call to follow him. Well, let's look at, at John 1, 35 through 51. You may remember that our passage last week covered two days, the day that the delegation of priests and Levites questioned John, and then the day that John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so today we arrive at the third day in John's week with Jesus. Look at John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. 
Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, it's probably best to organize our thoughts around the people that Jesus encounters in this passage, all of whom show that if we will truly receive Jesus for who he is, nothing will ever be the same. Uh, As we go through these individuals, we'll also note these five titles that are given to Jesus. So notice first, though, in verses 35 through 39, Andrew and John. Andrew and John. This day opens with John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples. In other words, two men who had come to John, not in the spirit of, of the Jewish authorities in verse 19, but in a spirit of humility. They had certainly been baptized by John and were committed to learning from John and, and, how, and learning from him how they could prepare for the Messiah's arrival. Uh, one of these two disciples is identified in verse 40 as Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, while the other one remains unnamed. We can't know for sure, but it's likely that this unnamed individual is actually John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, the same one that we're taking as the author of this gospel. Given that he says uh, later on that he was writing down his eyewitness testimony to who Jesus was, it makes sense that he would start at the very beginning, at where he met Jesus. Also, as we read this, there's specific details, things about time and and place in these verses that seem to point to the fact that the person writing it was an eyewitness. We find that as these men were standing together, Jesus arrived as he had the, the day before, and just as he did on that day, John said, as Jesus walked by, look, the Lamb of God. Then in response to John's testimony about Jesus, Andrew and John were told, followed Jesus, leaving John at the water's edge. It's a pretty simple but profound scene, isn't it? If I had the talent of oil painting, I think I'd paint this picture. John there and the two disciples following Jesus and leaving him there. I think it's a moment that could make us feel sorry for John the Baptist when you think about it. However, that's probably the last thing that, that he would want us to feel. His whole ministry was, was focused on pointing people to the Messiah, who he now understood to be Jesus. So, in fact, when Andrew and John followed Jesus, it was a sign that John the Baptist had done his job very well. I wonder if we would do the same as John. Uh, would we encourage those amongst us to leave us in obedience to Christ. There can be a temptation, I think, in ministries or in churches to to hold on to people, to attach some sort of significance to the the number of people who remain among us and therefore feel some sort of sense of, of sadness or failure when they leave. But if if our ministry is meant to help people follow Jesus and their following Jesus leads them away from us, then haven't we done exactly what we should? Isn't that actually success? Most of you know that the the history of Grace Fellowship Church is filled with stories of people following Jesus amongst us and then following him far away from us as they move on to the foreign mission field or into pastoral ministry or into some other kind of ministry. And while we hate to see those that we love leave, if they are following Christ, then like John, we rejoice. 
after nearly 20 years of existing as a church, we have remained much the same size as far as our membership goes. But think about how many people have left us, not in anger, not in apostasy, but in devotion to Jesus. And so we can be like John, stand at the water's edge, maybe, maybe with a tear in our eyes, but with the smile of satisfaction on our face because we know that we have fulfilled at least in part what our mission is as a church, which is to point others to Jesus and to devotion to him above everything else. Uh, well, the scene then moves away from John and we see what I think is a somewhat comical first conversation between Jesus and these two disciples, Andrew and, and John. They're following Jesus close enough that he kind of notices it. You know how that feeling if someone's, why are they walking so close? Maybe, maybe Andrew accidentally stepped on the back of his sandal or, or something. Uh, whatever happened, Jesus turns and he asks them, what do you want? No, that's not how he said it, is it? He says, what do you want? It's not an angry question. It's actually, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Isn't that a powerful question when you think about it? On one level, it's the simple question of, of kind of why are you following me? But on another level, it's, it's a question that gets right down to our core motivations. In all that we do, what do we really want? What are we looking for? What are we hoping to find? What are we seeking? Pretty amazing that that powerful question is actually what makes up John's or Jesus' first words in John's gospel. That's his first words. What are you seeking? And they force anyone who desires to follow Jesus to articulate right from the beginning what it is that they truly want. And here's a beautiful bit of irony, that the one asking the question is also the answer to it. In the end, whatever we most fundamentally want, whatever it is that we are seeking is found in Jesus. Purpose, significance, acceptance, love, meaning, life, joy, beauty, satisfaction, and anything else is found ultimately in Jesus and in Jesus alone. What are you seeking? Well, Andrew and John respond like most of us would if we ever met some, a celebrity or some sort of well-known figure. They're just a little bit speechless, I think. I don't even know that they heard Jesus's question. They begin their response by giving Jesus the third title uh, in this passage, which is rabbi. John tells us that the word means teacher. And D.A. Carson comments that the title was used as a courtesy honorific applied by respectful people to those they recognized as public teachers of divine subject matter. So we might assume that, that they had probably called John the Baptist rabbi too. But by, by referring to Jesus as, as teacher, they're obviously saying that they have something to learn from him. They're indicating that they are ready to listen to what he has to say. That's the first step for anyone who wants to follow Jesus, a willingness to listen to him. Or as Jesus says it, ears to hear. Just think how many people miss Jesus simply because they don't slow down long enough to listen to him. 
while Andrew and John say rabbi, and then they ask him this question. Where are you staying? (laughs) It's a strange question, I think. But it's one that indicates that they want to spend some time with Jesus. I think that's what they're saying. Jesus, where are you staying? Because we want to talk to you for a little bit, and we want to hear from you. They've picked up some lessons, I think, from, on humility from John the Baptist, and they tell Jesus they want to sit with him, and they want to talk to him, and they want to get to know who he is, and they want to, they want to learn from him. And in, the, in a similar way, we should all be ready to learn from Jesus. We should be ready to allow Jesus to be our rabbi, to be our great teacher. Of course, there's, a, there's another sense, if you look at this, where they're, they're actually kind of inviting themselves over to Jesus' house. <laughs> And the wonderful thing is that Jesus doesn't shrug them off. He doesn't say, that's a little bit rude. He invites them. He says, come, come and see. And he does so knowing that the day is late. It's probably about four o'clock, such that the sun is going to be setting, and they're probably going to end up staying the night with him because they're going to have no other place to get to that evening by the time the sun sets. But that doesn't bother Jesus. He, he models to us in this the blessing of hospitality, doesn't he? Doesn't he? The, the blessing of having a, an open door. But even more broadly, we see that Jesus freely invites us to know him. He, he's not hiding from us. He's not in an ivory tower far removed from us. He doesn't live in a gated community. He doesn't live behind a castle wall. He is... He's amongst us. He welcomes us to him. He wants us to ask our questions, to find out who he is. He wants us to discover that when we feel the question, what am I seeking rise within us, that he, in fact, is the answer. Well, like so many great conversations in the Bible, there's no record of this one. Uh, But it's fun to think about how late into the evening these three men stayed awake conversing. Uh, The text, though, moves quickly on to the next morning. Uh, Having met with Jesus and conversed with him, Andrew agreed with John the Baptist that this is the one that they'd been waiting for. And so the first thing he does is he goes and he finds his brother, Peter. Now, before we look at Peter, let's just note that the tone that Andrew sets for this passage, but also for every other time that we meet Andrew, because this is what we find out about Andrew. He's always bringing people to Jesus. That's what marks Andrew. He's always bringing people to Jesus. We'll point this out as we see it in our study. But for now, we find that that the moment he realized who Jesus was and that he was the one that every soul was ultimately searching for, he went straight to his brother so that he could introduce his brother to Jesus. How did you meet Jesus? How did you come to find life in him? Well, of course, ultimately, it's because God himself was drawing you. But we know that God uses means, and the means that he often uses is other people. He can use churches. He can use special events. He could use sermons or television or the Internet. But by and large, the way that people meet Jesus is because individuals close to them tell them about him, about who he is. We could think as we look at these two brothers, let's just think about the role of family in particular. It should be the most natural thing in the world for us to tell our family who Jesus is and how he has changed our lives. Of course, sometimes the opposite is true. Sometimes family is the hardest place to talk about Jesus. But Andrew shows us that we have no need to be ashamed of Christ or of the gospel. 
He encourages us to, to bring other people to Jesus. He encourages you to continue to tell your children about Jesus. To talk to your siblings or to your parents or to your aunts and your uncles, your cousins and so on, knowing that, that he is the only one that can save them. That he freely says, come, come and see to anyone who will listen to and learn from him. He welcomes them in. Andrew's a good example for us. With that said, though, we arrive at probably the most famous of Jesus' disciples, which is Simon Peter. Simon Peter. We see the place of prominence that Peter holds amongst the disciples in the fact that even Andrew is, is known as Simon Peter's brother. Uh, maybe you were like me. You had an older sibling ahead of you in school such that all my teachers would say, are you Christie's brother? I'd say, yes, I'm Christie's brother. Uh, even more so, I had a, a great uncle, Uncle Mel. He was a bit larger than life. He was a pastor in my home church's history. And when people would hear my last name, they'd say, they'd, I'd say, my name is Andy Sabaka. They'd say, Sabaka, are you related to Mel? Because Mel was larger than life. Uh, that's the life that Andrew had as well. Aren't you Peter's brother? <laughs> because Peter was larger than life. Of course, Peter never would have met Jesus if it hadn't been for his brother Andrew, though, right? So while few of us, uh, few of any of us will be very Peter-like in our role within the church, uh, we can all bring people to Jesus. We may even bring Peters to Jesus. We can faithfully talk to our neighbors. We can faithfully teach Sunday school. We can faithfully converse with the stranger. And who knows who we might be bringing to Jesus? Well, Andrew finds Simon, and he says to him, we found the Messiah, which John tells us is the equivalent to the Greek word Christ. And this then is the, the fourth title in this Week with Jesus passage, Messiah. To understand it, we might even go back to that question that Jesus asked, what are you seeking? And we would find that one answer that could be given by all the Jewish people of his day was, we're looking for the Messiah. We're seeking the Messiah. It's a word that means the anointed one. When we hear that word anointed, our minds might first go to a, a king um, who is a, anointed, though we also see in the Old Testament that priests are anointed, and even prophets are sometimes anointed. These individuals are set apart for special service to God, and Andrew likely didn't have all of this in his mind, but, but through Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection and ascension, he makes it clear that he is the anointed one. He is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament pictures, including the pictures of prophet and priest and king. He is the one that the Jewish people and that every soul is looking for. He is the anointed one. At that declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, Andrew brought Simon uh, to Jesus. Surprisingly, if you look at this passage, Simon doesn't say anything. Instead, Jesus speaks to him, and Jesus gives him a new name. Sort of funny because, you know, throughout this, this, these verses, people are identifying who Jesus is through various titles. But here, Jesus is identifying Simon as Cephas, an Aramaic word for rock that is equivalent to Petros or Peter in Greek. William still uh, old preacher that I've listened to from time to time uses his imagination and he wonders if Andrew sort of quietly laughed uh, at this name that Jesus had given 
to his impetuous and impulsive and somewhat reckless brother? Could Simon Peter really be a rock? Uh, But whoever Simon was before he met Jesus, Jesus was going to make him a rock. As far as exactly uh, why Jesus calls him Peter, we can look to other passages for the answer. But D.A. Carson, again, is helpful. He says, here in John 1, the focus is much less on what his name change means for Peter than on the Jesus who knows people thoroughly and not only sees into them, but also so calls them that he makes them what he calls them to be. I'm going to read that again. It's powerful, but a little confusing. It's the, Jesus, he, it, the focus is on the Jesus who knows people thoroughly and not only sees into them, but also so calls them that he makes them what he calls them to be. In other words, whoever Peter was before he met Jesus, whether in his strengths or his weaknesses, it, it didn't really matter. If Jesus said he was a rock, then he's going to be a rock. And so too, when Jesus calls us, when Jesus makes us his children, he can make us whoever he desires us to be. That could be a person who just brings people to Jesus. Could be a rock that helps to build the church in significant ways. Whatever the case, he can make any and all of us exactly who he calls us to be. Because the Christian doesn't need to measure his or her potential by by personal abilities or by status, or by anything else within us personally. How do we measure the potential that we have as a Christian? We measure it by the limitless power of Jesus. You are and you will be whatever he says you are and you will be. So Jesus has now been identified as rabbi and messiah, and we've met John as well as Andrew and his brother Simon Peter, and next in verse 43 we're introduced to Philip. We read in in verse 43 that the the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. However, it's better translated simply, he decided to go to Galilee. Uh, Jesus' name is not in the original text there, which would then beg the question, who decided to go to Galilee? Uh, It most certainly could be Jesus who made the decision, but that kind of breaks a bit with the way that everyone in this passage, including Nathaniel in verses 45 and 6, is brought to Jesus. Jesus doesn't go to people. People are brought to him. And so it could be actually that Andrew is the subject. And having first, we're told, brought his brother to Jesus, he then went and found his friend Philip, who we're told is from the same hometown as he and his brother, so that he might introduce Philip to Jesus. Or it could be that Peter is the one mentioned here, that that Peter found Philip. All of this, I think, would, would it, it doesn't ultimately matter, but it would preserve this theme of witnesses that we see in John and, and, and the fact that people are, are being brought to Jesus. So we see John the Baptist bears witness to who Jesus was to Andrew and John. And then Andrew bears witness to Peter. And then Andrew or Peter bears witness to Philip. And then Philip bears witness to Nathaniel. It's kind of beautiful, isn't it? Well, however Philip encountered Jesus, the call of Philip is very brief, isn't it? Jesus simply says, follow me. He invites Philip to literally follow him, but more fundamentally to be his disciple, to accept him as rabbi and as Messiah, to make it the goal of his life to walk with and learn from Jesus. And Philip does. We know this because like Andrew, he goes and he finds a friend, 
to bring to Jesus. It's the first thing these guys do. Every time they find Jesus, they go find someone to bring to him. So in verse 45, we meet the final witness of this chapter, Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Uh, Nathaniel's only found here in John's gospel. And given the fact that the other four men in this passage are part of the group of the 12 disciples, there's actually some que- there's a question as to whether or not Nathaniel is an alternate name for one of the 12 disciples. Uh, maybe Bartholomew uh, would be a good candidate because he's often associated with Philip in the other gospels. So often the disciples are linked together and it's always uh, Philip and Bartholomew. Um, so Nathaniel, again, is not mentioned in the other Gospels. He is mentioned, though, uh, in the boat and on the beach in John chapter 21, which would seem to put him amongst the 12 from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry all the way through to his resurrection. Something to think about. But whoever he is, what we find is that the pattern of the passage is repeated, right? Philip tells Nathaniel that they found the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. If we wanted to take that as another title for Jesus in this passage, we could. But in many ways, it's actually just another way of saying that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of prophecies like the one in Deuteronomy 18 that's alluded to in verse 21 of this chapter. Or even Genesis 28 that's spoken of later on in this passage. Or countless other passages that promised an anointed one who would come and rescue his people. When you think about this, All these guys saying, we found the Messiah. We found the one that all the Old Testament scriptures are talking about. It's it's nearly impossible to feel the weight of that. That that the one, the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures had been pointing to. The, The one that every Jewish person had been waiting for. Not just in that time, but for all time that everyone had been waiting for. Had come. He was here. This is the moment, not just that these men had been waiting for, but the entire nation had been waiting for. They were all looking for this prophet like Moses, this king like David, and now he came. And he had a name, Jesus. He had a hometown, Nazareth. And as far as everyone around him was concerned, he had a father, Joseph. That's how he's identified here, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, in the same way that anyone else in that time would have been identified. Their first name, the town that they're from, and whose son they were. I think this is the title we should highlight, the, the Jesus of Nazareth, because it's the one that astonishes Nathaniel. He says to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I think I've always taken that as some sort of a slight on the town of Nazareth, and it, it could be in part, but it could be that that he's simply saying there's no prophecy in Moses or in the prophets about Nazareth. How could the Messiah be Jesus from Nazareth? That doesn't make any sense. And of course, we know that Jesus was born in the royal city of David, Bethlehem, in fulfillment of the prophets. We know that he was miraculously conceived without a human father, but Philip doesn't go down that route. What does he say to Nathaniel? He says the same thing that Jesus said to Andrew and John. Come and see. (laughs) Just... Just come and see. I'm not going to try to fight you on this, Nathaniel. You know, I think as we witness to who Jesus is to, to folks, sometimes we, we don't need to answer every question that a skeptical person might ask us. We can allow people, as we're telling them about who Christ is, to have uncertainties. We can allow them to identify apparent contradictions in our faith. And then you know what you do? You say, 
why don't you just open the scriptures and, and see what Jesus is like? Why don't, you, why don't you come to church? You can listen to the scriptures along with people who believe. Why, why don't you just come and see Jesus for a little bit? Listen to him teach. Talk with people who've been transformed by him. Come and see, and then tell me what you think. We'll deal with your questions at some point, but for now, just come and see. Well, Nathaniel approaches Jesus, likely with a very critical eye, but before he can start asking him a question, what does Jesus do? He pays him a compliment. <laughs> Kindness is disarming. So often we assume that if people come looking for a fight, that we better give them what they're looking for. <laughs> but maybe, maybe we can just compliment them in some sort of a genuine way. What does Jesus say of Nathaniel? He says, this man is truly an Israelite in whom there is no guile, no deceit. In other words, I think what Jesus is, is communicating is that his skepticism is not disingenuous. It's, it's not self-serving. It's not prideful. Rather, Nathaniel is just someone who's seeking the truth. He, he wants to be sure about Jesus, and Jesus says, that's admirable. That's, that's a good thing. It would seem that Jesus' knowledge of who Nathaniel was actually caught him off guard. He, so he says to Jesus, uh, have we met? How do, you, how do you know me? And Jesus miraculous, miraculously speaks of some time prior to that, seeing Nathaniel, what exactly Nathaniel was doing is really not as important as the fact that Jesus had this supernatural knowledge of him and the purity of Nathaniel's heart, that lack of, of guile and deceitfulness, and the purity of his motives are then seen in the fact that he quickly receives Jesus. He calls him rabbi, as did the other disciples. He recognizes, he recognizes that, that Jesus has something to teach him and he's ready to learn. He says, along with John the Baptist, Jesus is not the son of Joseph, he's the son of God. And then he gives Jesus the sixth title. You are the king of Israel. The king of Israel. It's amazing to see this transformation that happens in Nathaniel. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then he says, you're the king of Israel. The covenant made with David in 2 Samuel 7 comes to our minds, but we could also be reminded of how the Jewish people were seeking for some sort of a political ruler, someone who would liberate them and restore their land to them. Whatever Nathaniel meant by this title, neither he nor anyone else understood just what kind of a king Jesus would be, that he in fact would be mocked by that title, that it would be put above the cross. Behold, the king of the Jews. And that actually it was in dying and rising again that he would become a king, not only to the Jewish people, but to the whole world. Jesus seems to point out there then that there's, there's much more to him and his ministry than any of them realized as he responds to Nathaniel. It, this is Jesus speaks at, at some length for the, the first time, and he says, in a sense, to all of his disciples as they're gathered around, not just to Nathaniel, but to all of them, he just says, you guys ain't seen nothing yet. He's not dismissing their faith as, as, as not real, but he's simply saying that the miracles that are astounding them right now are nothing compared to the greater mission and ministry that they're about to observe if they will continue to walk with him. 
and following him that day they began walking down a path that would be a path that would be filled with wonder after wonder after wonder you think me knowing who you were before i met you nathaniel that that's a big deal you ain't seen nothing yet Jesus draws then on the Old Testament story of Jacob that we read earlier in Genesis 28, where Jacob saw this vision of a ladder to heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. He named the place where he saw that vision Bethel, meaning the house of God. It would seem that Jesus is saying that he will be the place where heaven and earth meet. That as they observe him teaching and working miracles, and even dying, and resurrecting, and ascending, they will see how God has come among humanity, and also how humanity can be with God himself. Like Jacob, who did not realize just where he was when he had fallen asleep, the disciples understood, but also had no idea just exactly who Jesus was. And here Jesus calls himself by the seventh title in the passage, the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. In fact, it's, it's the most unclear of all the titles that are in this passage. It's likely connected back to, to Daniel 7. And it's Jesus' favorite title for himself. And it would seem it's Jesus' favorite title for himself in part because he can fill it with meaning. If Jesus called himself Messiah, or if he said, I'm the king of the Jews, it would bring all kinds of images into the minds of the people that were hearing him. They would think they knew exactly who he was and what he was trying to communicate by those titles. But by saying he's the son of man, it allows him to define his mission. He can show just what it means for the word to have become flesh and dwell among them. He could help them realize that in receiving him for who he truly is, nothing would ever be the same. And if we will receive, truly receive Jesus for who he is, then nothing will ever be the same for us as well. And who is he? I could list those titles for you again, but the Bible Project guys have this great summary of the seven titles in this passage, and this is how it goes. I'll say it twice. The fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the messianic king and teacher of Israel and the son of God who will die for the sins of the world. That's all seven titles that we've looked at in one sentence. The fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the messianic king and teacher of Israel and the son of God who will die for the sins of the world. In verses 10 and 11 of this chapter, John told us how Jesus came into the world that he had created and no one recognized him. He came to his own people, to his home as it were, and no one would open the front door for him. But John also says this in verses 12 and 13, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's what's happening in this passage. We start to see that there were some people who received Jesus. They didn't fully understand who he was, but they are ready to learn from him as their rabbi. They're ready to see in him that that he is the fulfillment of everything that they have been longing for. I pray too that we would have hearts to learn from Jesus. We're at the beginning of this journey in John. 
and, and we're going to walk and we're going to see more. And we've seen amazing things already just in this first chapter of this gospel. But the same thing that Jesus said to his disciples, he says to us as we step into chapter 2 in a couple weeks, he says, you ain't seen nothing yet. There's so much more about who he is that he's going to unveil for us and reveal to us. And he is worthy of us laying down our lives and following him with everything that we have. So I pray that we would have hearts that want to see who Jesus is and understand him and that by God's grace, as he helps us to be born, not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but through him and by his spirit, that we will grow in our knowledge of him and our commitment to him. Let's take a moment of silence uh, and then I will pray for us. Father, we again thank you that you have not left us without a witness. You've given us your word and you've sent us Christ who is the exact representation of who you are. Would you continue to help us to see who he is and help us to truly receive him so that our lives might be transformed and that we might be formed more and more into your image. We ask this all in Jesus' name.